God is good. Tonight, if you turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 6, we're going to take care of chapter 6 and chapter 7 tonight. And actually, as you read them, you'd understand why. Uh, Remember, there was no punctuation when the Old Testament was drafted. And interestingly enough, and I'll share this with you, in the last three months, there have been two discoveries in the area of Jerusalem. One of them that is new is actually was reported on today uh, in the mainstream news. Uh, but they, they have forever, and you've probably heard this, the Arabs say the Jews never inhabited Jerusalem. It's a fake. It's a farce. They don't belong there. It's not their land. There's no such thing as the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's no land of promise. The Jewish people are not even a race. And all kinds of ridiculous things that have been said. Well, fortunately for Archaeology. Last year, as they were excavating in the city of David, which, as I've shared with you before, is south of the actual Temple Mount, the original city, which was inhabited by David, uh, they found a number of different pieces of pottery. And on that pottery, they finally got around to translating what's on the inscription on the mouth of those uh, pieces of pottery. And unfortunately for all of the Arab-speaking peoples in the world, it proves conclusively that the Jews have inhabited the city of Jerusalem for at least 3,000 years. So every time the spade goes in the ground, they flip something over, your Bible comes up true. So another one, they found a pillar a year ago, also same thing, that proved that David was inhabiting the land of Israel, the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, about a thousand years before Jesus came on the scene. So secular archaeologists found those things, secular archaeologists dated those things, and secular archaeologists translated those things. So there's no biblical bias here. It's what it says, it's where it's found, it's how old it is, and it proves once again uh, that the Bible is true, and as it says of itself, let every man be a liar. So uh, God is good, keeps just giving us information to let us know that Yep, I wrote it. It came from me, and it's true. Amen? So we begin here in Hosea chapter 6. And and I want to remind you, you know, as we read these somewhat difficult passages, there's always a silver lining in them. And the silver lining in, in all things where there's judgment for us as believers is this. You're not going to see it. You will not be around for the judgment of God. If you're a believer in Christ, your Bible says of itself, for God has not appointed us unto wrath. Okay, so we're we're okay with the Lord. We're going to heaven. So when he gets ready to do some of these things that we read about, it's like, man, I don't want to be around for that. You won't be around for that if you know the Lord. I feel sorry for those who believe in a post-tribulational rapture or a mid-tribulational rapture. You're going to go through those things. But here in this church, uh, pre-tribulational rapture of the church is going to happen. We're going to be gone. Uh, We're going to be in heaven, marriage supper of the Lamb, hanging out with Jesus. We'll we'll be coming back at the end when it's all over. So God, God is good. So as we read these things and as we recognize that there there are similitudes and when we talk about similitudes it really is the phrase it was like so when you think of a similitude or a simile it, it simply means that that thing being described is pointing to something else and so what is being pointed to is like what is being described so if i tell you uh, the sky is blue i could also say it's like the ocean you follow that So when I say that the sky is blue, I can say it is just like the ocean. And you would think, oh, yeah, the blue ocean. 
I can give you a simile or a similitude. And so as we read these chapters, uh, we're getting to the longest string of similes found in your Bible that are, that are linked one right after another. And we come to a place in time to where God is describing for us something that none of us want to be. And that's a spiritual hypocrite. And I don't, not so much talking about a literal hypocrite, though that goes along with this and is in the same territory. It's that person that says one thing about their relationship with God and lives another way. And as we begin this passage of Scripture, I want to remind you that God knows exactly how truthful we're being in, in all that we say and all that we do. We're not fooling him when we say, oh, yeah, I repented. And in your heart, it's dark blackness. Uh, you, you say, well, I've forsaken that. And in your heart, you're still carrying on and lusting after that thing or that relationship uh, as much as you ever were. God understands fully where we are at. The only people that we fool are other people. We don't fool the Lord God in heaven with our mouthy words, with our uh, actions that are that are taken uh, because we want other people to see how holy we are. Uh, I've shared with you some stories. I have probably years worth after being a camp director for so many years. But when you look back on, on the history of the things that I do, I can't tell you how many people instantaneously upon my arrival change everything they do, everything they say, everything that they, the way they act, the way they speak. They're all of a sudden they're speaking in King James English and before that they were using profanity, you know. It's just like you come up on the backside of a con conversation, it's like, well, you know, things I won't repeat here. And then I get there and it's like, oh, praise the Lord, brother, for he has risen. You know, you kind of, you're like, you think God didn't get that? You, you think somehow that because I got there all of a sudden, you know, the Lord wasn't listening or something the first time? And, and so as we look at this passage, Israel was in a state of false repentance. And I want to speak to that subject tonight. And, and again, I, I will preface it with probably most of you because you're here, probably not struggling in this area too much. But it's helpful to each of us, and it's very helpful to other people when we're counseling, when we're talking to people about the legitimacy of their turning from sin, that, that it is real because you're not fooling God. And, and so the nation Israel was like, oh, well, we'll just say the right things. We'll, 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 we'll take these little actions over here and we'll just do them. And, and you know what? It's like if we can fool people, we somehow fool God. And we don't fool God. God sees it for exactly what it is. And more than that, it's actually even worse than just outright telling God that, you know, I'm not going to do it to some degree. Because it presumes that God is either stupid or he's not watching or listening. Because you can be fooled. And so tonight, as we look at chapter 6 and 7, filing the appeal. You remember last week, we, the verdict is in. They're guilty. They did it. There was no joking around about it. It was, it was done. God had pronounced judgment. Uh, it, it's going to happen. It was a foregone conclusion. That's what that means. It's going to happen. 
God's justice was going to fall upon them. He hardened hearts. He said, I've had enough. My grace has been extended to this point. I'll go no further. And isn't it interesting, and you've probably seen this in, in your lifetime, all of you, to where someone who is a convicted, generally felon, uh, it, but it happens, of course, in lesser offenses, but very often in, in those felonious acts that are the big things as far as we're concerned, after the verdict has been handed down, it's been read, you are guilty as charged. Everything that you are charged with, you're found guilty of, all of a sudden, there's repentance. We call it a jailhouse confession or a jailhouse repentance. You're standing there and now, you, up until that point, man, if I just say the right things, I think I can get out of this. If I just act this way, maybe the sentence will be commuted or lessened. And all of a sudden, it gets very real when the verdict is read. And it's like, well, I didn't mean it. I, you know, yeah, I did it, but that isn't what I was thinking. You know, I was uh, sure I shot the guy, but I mean, the gun, you know, it's the gun's fault. I mean, if we didn't have guns, it would have never happened. It's the same thing spiritually. People look at their lives and they live their lives as if God didn't exist and they keep going that direction almost indefinitely. They get out to the end and they're confronted with their life and God's saying, look, I've sent you eight and a half thousand people throughout your lifetime. Each one of them shared the gospel with you, told you you need to repent, showed you the word, you keep going this way, and now... God's knocking on that eternal door and saying it's time to come home, and you're all of a sudden, well, I want to repent. I got a jailhouse confession. Yeah, I did it. It's too late. It isn't going to work. But they still file the appeal anyway. And so tonight, filing the appeal. And so the judge is in the courtroom. The plaintiff shouts out, I'm sorry. And that's where we find here in verse 1 in Hosea chapter 6. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. And Lord, we pray that we would not be found trying to cajole or fool you. Lord, trying to give you some story about how we got to where we are. Lord, that we would learn to simply take responsibility for the things in our lives that we need to say we're sorry for and do it genuinely with a whole heart, unhypocritically, and just ask you to change us and then accept the things that you hand down as necessary for that change or for the renewing of our minds, for the putting on of the new man and the putting off of the old. We bless you for your word. We thank you, God, for the truth contained in it. Pray now that you would speak to us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Verse 1, it says, Come and notice how genuine this sounds, but it's going to become real clear as we go through this chapter and the next that they don't mean a word of it. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn, but He will heal us. He has stricken, but He will bind us up. And after two days, He will revive us. And on the third day, He will raise us up. Now remember what I said. Satan can quote Scripture. Amen? People who don't know the Lord very often use their Bibles. 
They just don't use them in context, and they don't use them truthfully. I can't tell you how many people have tried to fight me with Scripture when they're holding an unbiblical position. And they'll quote, my favorite one is, judge not lest you be judged. Like, you should never, ever inspect anyone's fruit. Like, as long as you're tolerant, you should overlook every sin, because tolerance trumps everything. It goes on to say in that passage, lest after the same manner also you should be judged with the measure you judge others. And then it goes on to say, by their fruit you shall know them. And it says very definitively that we're to look at the fruit of people's lives and find out whether they're actually olives on an olive tree, grapes on a grapevine, or tares amongst the wheat, wolves amongst the sheep. And so be careful when people quote Scripture, because sometimes it's not from the Lord at all, even though it's chapter and verse. That's why you need to know your Bible. And here they say on the third day, see, this is a biblical principle. Book of Jonah, pretty clearly, three days in the belly of the whale, raised up, spit up on the beach. On the third day, it raises up. They knew what was going to happen. They had heard what the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, was going to do that we may live in his sight. Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established in the morning, and he will come to us like the rain, like the latter and the former rain. And so they're just extolling the things that they knew intellectually about God. And mark that word in your mind. You see, they actually knew what their Bible said figuratively speaking. They had the Pentateuch, at least the first five books of the Bible available to them at this time. Remember, this is about 900 B.C. or so. And so here they are. They're they're able to kind of quote chapter and verse. Oh, and the Lord will bless us like the former rain and the latter rain, and you know He's going to raise us up. But by the time we get to chapter 7, it says, They do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek Him. They have spoken lies against Me, says the Lord. They return, but not to the Most High God. You see, they weren't fooling God. This was just religious speech. And so what they really wanted was happiness. Not holiness. And I can tell you, this is a huge problem in humankind. I can't tell you how many times people want to come into my office and they want me to make them happy, but they don't want me to tell them what God's Word says so that they can be holy. They want what they want to hear that makes them feel good, but they don't want to hear what will change them. I cannot tell you how many times in a simple, very concise manner, my counseling goes like this. Do you own a Bible? Yes. Do you read it? Yes. Do you do what it says? Mm -mm. (laughs) Mm-mm. Go do step three, then come back. We'll talk about step one. 
You see, it is that simple with God. What God is looking at is He wants us to take His Word for what it says and believe what it says and then do what it says. Not try and come up with our own interpretation of it that fits our lifestyle, which is what a lot of people do. Well, I'm already in this relationship, so I don't want to get out of the relationship because that would make me unhappy. So instead, they would rather be unholy. They would rather be at odds with God than with some other person on this earth. That was the Jewish people in Hosea's time. They wanted everything nice around them. They were busy adjusting the paintings on the wall when the house was falling down. You get the picture? That's a simile, by the way. They're they're going... Oh, well, you can't have that. The house is going like this, and they're moving the pictures to make them look straight with the new walls that are falling over. You see, that's how people can get when you stop considering it from God's perspective. They wanted a change of circumstances, but not a change in character. You get the picture? And there is a huge difference between those two things. You see, I can give you things that will change your level of happiness. I can probably circumstantially make you happy. If one day I come in and I have like some bank stacks of $100 bills in here, that would be $10,000 a piece, by the way. And I pull those out and I start hucking them out there. Well, people will die because you'll crawl over each other. But, but some of you will be really happy. You, you see, why? Because I changed your circumstance. But can I tell you that $10,000 won't change your character one bit? Not one bit. Unless your character has already been changed, unless your mind is being renewed, unless your character is that of Christ, then the $10,000 will simply make you circumstantially happy. Do you see how that works? That doesn't make it better. Could make it actually a lot worse. How many people actually get circumstantial happiness and then their lives spiritually completely fall apart? They get that promotion, but all of a sudden they're working so many hours they don't have time for God. And again, I'm not against promotions. I want to make that very clear. I'm not against you having millions of dollars. If God blesses you that way and you handle it with kingdom vision, then praise the Lord. Glory to God. But you can also have that and not walk with the Lord. And so that's where these people were. You you, you see, they're looking at these things that are temporal and not eternal. And so I would say to you, there is a huge difference between wanting to be free of the consequences of sin and wanting to be free of the bondage of sin. Do you see the difference? You see, because people don't like the consequences of sin pretty universally. If I come to you and tell you that you're going to get some you know, horrible disease because you're engaged in some illicit behavior, people don't want the circumstances that are going to come into their life to disturb their holiness that are going to come upon them because they've engaged in that behavior, and they surely don't want the consequences of that sin but yet they won't undertake what's necessary to be free of the bondage of that sin. And it is the freedom of the bondage of the sin that actually gives real peace, that actually does something in your life that's worth having. 
Because all of us can go work harder. Some people say, well, work smarter. You can work smarter, work harder, work longer. You can do all kinds of things like that and possess for yourself many things, and they may be circumstantially actually good. But if your character remains unchanged and you remain in bondage to the things that have trapped you, then you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. You may act like you're alive, you may speak Christianese. You may walk around just babbling lots of Bible. But if it hasn't gotten to your heart to where it becomes some way that you live, not just something that you know, then you are truly in trouble. Be careful, especially when giving counsel to other people. And where I'm seeing this in our world right now is in some of these critical social issues to where I believe Bible-believing Christians are compromising the very Word of God so that they don't have to be at conflict with anyone. We want to say what everyone else wants to hear because it's the popular opinion. Gay marriage. How many Christians caving in on it? who once walked the line, towed it, said, you know what, the Bible is God's inerrant word, we believe it. How many people on abortion? Same thing. Well, you know, the life of the mother. Certain circumstances. Is a baby a baby? Is it ever not a baby? Come Sunday, you'll find out. Because Mary got a very surprise uh, answer to that question in Luke chapter 1. Upon hearing the arrival of Elizabeth, the baby leapt in Mary's womb. The baby had its own consciousness at six months old. You you see, these issues we need to understand are pivotal to us as Christians because we're losing our ability to be salt and light because of compromise, because of caving in. I can't tell you how many parents I've sat down after the fact with them. Well, you're right. I should have discouraged that relationship with my son or with my daughter. And now there's a baby on the way. And they're 18, 17, 19 years old. You know, I I wouldn't stand for God's standards. I wanted to make some new ones that that didn't cause me to have any strife in my home with my children. Family of God, there's time that you need to stand at all costs because you'll only get one opportunity to stand in that area because once it's done and it's over, it's done and it's over. Now, there's forgiveness for repentance. But how many things do we let slide? And where does that slide end? That's my question to you. Where does that slide end? As we saw last time, I don't believe I can tell you that I know. I don't know when the last direct disobedience is for you, or me for that matter, going to be looked at by God as that crossing the line time. And so here, they're confusing it. They thought that, hey, I'm real sorry I got caught. You ever you ever had that experience? But there actually wasn't true repentance in your heart? I think most of us have as children. 
We're just sorry we got caught. You know, you're there in the cookie jar and you're up to your elbow and you got, you know, you're like the old monkey puzzle trick. You can't get your hand back out because there are too many cookies in it. In walks mom. Uh oh. And you're trying to, oh, well, you know, my brother told me to come in and he wanted a cookie, so I was just being good. And you know what's coming. Because back in my day and time, we still got the belt. I didn't die from it, by the way. Didn't particularly like it. But, you know, a little adjustment to the seat of knowledge sometimes acts as a wonderful stimuli to the rest of the body. Yeah, you're like, man, I know what's coming next. And you're just like, okay, I'll go to the garage, you know, and you you know you're going to get the spanking you deserve. But you're sorry you got caught. But you're whole, the whole time you're going, ah, if I just gotten there five minutes earlier. You know, if I'd only grabbed three cookies and could have pulled them out quicker. You know, you go through that mental gymnastics. Oh, I got caught. If I'd have just done this. That's not true repentance. You're not actually... Sorry for what you what you did. You're sorry you're going to get in trouble. That's a lot of people with the Lord. They simply don't like what's coming down the pike. Be careful that what you teach others and what you believe yourself is consistent with God's character in that arena. We want true repentance in our lives. We don't want false repentance in our lives. As you look at this passage, you know, if you look at some of these things they're saying, oh, after two days he'll revive us. They're in verse 2. They were looking for a quick fix. How many people are looking for a quick fix in their spiritual lives? They're not looking for real change. They're looking for a quick fix. Be careful. You're not just looking for a quick fix. Quick fixes are very dangerous because they cause you to circumstantially think God is either not seeing it or He's okay with it. You want to undertake the actions necessary to fix the problem, to correct the character flaw, to deal with the issue so that it is not a desire of your heart anymore. Remember that the definition of worship is that which you bow down your heart to. That's the definition of worship. So whatever you bow down your heart to is what you worship. So if you continue to do the very things that you have been delivered from, I would say to you, you're actually still worshiping the same old God you used to worship and not the true and the living God because it hasn't produced a character change. The heart's still bowing down to the wrong idol, to the wrong God. And quite frankly, you talk about blind optimism. I mean, think about it for a second. Oh, well, we'll just say, we'll mumble a few words. Yeah, we've been living like the devil for two and a half decades at this point in time. For 25 years, they've been doing the wrong thing. And God's been patient. He sent prophets along like Hosea to say, hey, stop doing this. Go the other direction. They're going not going to do it. And now they get caught with their arm buried to the elbow in the cookie jar. And they're wondering, well, how come he's going to spank us now? I thought this just went on forever. And we keep doing whatever we want. You see, they're trying to file an appeal. Well, you know, you should have told us more. You kids ever say that to you? Well, I wasn't sure what you wanted. 
you know, after you wrote it out, you know, back in my day, it was on carbon paper in triplicate. You know, you put the carbon paper in there and you staple it at the top. And you write, okay, here's your copy and here's my copy. This one we'll put in the cupboard. And on this day, you will not beat your brother ever again. Well, you didn't really beat him this time. I mean, I uh, aggressively caused him to understand my opinion with my fist. You get the picture. You do that for years on end, decades on end. You're starting to reach that place to where God's just saying, your character's unchanged. You don't want what I'm offering because what I'm offering is freedom from the bondage of sin and death. I'm offering you a changed life, not a new way to do the old things. I'm offering you a new way to do new things. Very important to get the difference between those things. And so now he goes on, and and really what happens as you look at this, there, there's just a shallowness to their walk. I mean, they are about as spiritually shallow as you can get, and I know you know people like this. They're a Christian on Sunday, maybe, when they're in here. Out in the lobby, not so much. Parking lot, forget it. They're actually not saved in the parking lot. You know what I'm talking about? It's like in here, it's, oh, hi, brother. Out there, it's, take a flying hike. I hate your guts. You're the spawn of Satan. You know, and you know what I'm saying. And people live like that. And they come in on Sunday and they're just all, oh, yeah, I really got their Bible. And you can't actually get it open because it's never actually been opened before. I've had it for 25 years and it's like sealed, hermetically closed. The pages are stuck together. There's no painless and easy way to fix that problem, folks, because it's been ingrained into your character when you get that far along. You have learned how to try and work the system. And it's so difficult to break that habit. And it gets very painful and very, very, very arduous. And so now he moves on to a whole series of uh, similes and and what he was looking for was real forgiveness and real restoration and what they're doing is they're they're being word merchants you know it's like you're watching these TV debates and it's just like everybody comes up with what they think is the killer statement you know I'll just say this and if I say that they're dead you know if I get this out in the middle of this it, I won that's how the Jews were. Well, I got a counter to that. And, you know, they all get together and they huddle up and they start talking the whole thing through and they announce a spokesperson. Oh, well, surely the Lord will return to us and after three days he'll build us up. And, you know, what else does it say, Bob? Oh, yeah. And the part about the latter rain and the former rain. Yes, all of that, too. It was completely fake. They were saying what they thought God wanted to hear. It didn't come from their hearts. They're just mouthing words. When we truly repent, those words are coming out of a broken heart. You won't be able to not say them. You'll be on your face before God. God, woe is me, I am undone. 
I am a man of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips, just like Isaiah said. I don't even know what to say, God. I'm so wrong. There isn't even a definition of wrongness that comes up that could match how I've been. God, forgive me. And it's your heart. You can't help it. You never want to get to where these people were. Verse 4, and now all of these similes. And I want you to, we'll just take them one at a time and comment a little bit about each one. Because really he's just reinforcing one simile after another. Oh, Ephraim, what shall I do to you? See, God didn't believe what happened. Uh uh. uh. That's not true. What shall I do to you? Oh, Judah, what shall I do to you? So he's saying, Northern kingdom, southern kingdom, you kings of the north under Jeroboam, you kings of the south under the Davidic dynasty. He says, what am I going to do? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud. We know what that's like, don't we? You're driving along the rim and you're up here in the elevation and you drive down to Lake Arrowhead and all of a sudden they're in the cloud. It's like a morning cloud. Sun comes up, gone. Just instantaneously clear. You guys have had that experience, probably all of you. You're like a morning cloud. Like the early dew, it goes away. You ever notice that in the morning? You get out there and everything's just completely soaked. Sun comes up, just like that, gone. It's like it was never wet. And therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. He's saying, look, I'm hacking away on you. Imagine that Israel was like a totem pole. And here the prophets are out there. They're like, holiness, true repentance, righteousness, goodness, self-control. They're chopping. I have, the prophets have hewn you. That's what he's saying. The words of my mouth, the things I've spoken to you were true. They were exact. Your judgments are like the light that goes forth. He says, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You remember the problem with Cain and Abel? There was simply a difference. You know, here you've got blood and yuck and horror, and over here you've got a nice flower arrangement. One looked a whole lot better than the other one. That's what God's saying. He said, I don't want your sacrifices. Because you can fake that. That just works. I I want you to actually be merciful. Truly have a changed heart that says, "I, I, I will not allow to happen what should happen. I'm going to be a force in this world for good. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And the word there that's translated in, by the time you get to the, the Greek New text, Testament, it's the word gnosko. And it means the knowledge of God. It's like everything He is, all that He is, the character of Christ, the full armor that we saw on Sunday, putting on Christ, just looking at Him, man, this looks nothing like God. More than burnt offerings. But like men, they transgressed the covenant. And there they dealt with me treacherously. Gilead is a city of evildoers and defiled with blood as bands of robbers lie in wait for a man. And so the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. The priests are killing people on the way to Shechem. You remember what Shechem is? 
That's the place that Abraham lived. It's like, here, here's the place that Abraham lived. They probably, no doubt at that time, still had a monument to Abraham. This is where Abraham lived in Shechem. And the priests, because people were coming to venerate Abraham and to give their homage to God through what Abraham did for the Jewish people, the Jews knew that, so the priests are lying in wait on the side of the road for people to come by because they knew it was the hot ticket. I would say to you there's a lot of churches in America that are like that. The priests are waiting for the people to come so they can lie in wait and kill and murder and steal by telling them the untruth. And surely they commit lewdness. Still talking about the priests, by the way. I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is the harlotry of Ephraim, and Israel is defiled. You see, Israel could have stood against the northern kingdom, but by now they'd already started to cave in. And this is the place I hope in, in Jesus' name that I never see in my lifetime. To where there is no righteousness left. To where no one will stand for the truth of God's word. I was talking to my brother Jack Hibbs a week ago. And it was just like, you know what? If we die, we die. Doesn't mean anybody wants to. But there's got to be somebody that stands till the end. There's got to be at least one voice left in the land. And it's like, people don't want to think of that. But we need to think of it. What if you're the last one? Maybe it's not going to be me. It isn't going to be Jack Hibbs. It won't be Pastor Chuck. It's not going to be Chuck Swindoll. It's not going to be Billy Graham. Maybe it's going to be you. You ever thought of that? said, also, Judah, harvest has appointed you when I return the captives of my people. You see, like the morning dew, and I know you've all seen this. I, you've probably gone out into a field and you just see the glistening grass. And it's like, it's just beautiful. And an hour later, gone. That's pharisaical hypocrisy. That's real shallowness. It just looks good for an hour or two, and then it's gone. It's exactly how they were then. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who say they're Christians, but that's exactly how their life is marked out. And I want you to notice that God holds them accountable for what they did know. Notice what he quotes. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. He said, okay, maybe you guys don't have a deep theological understanding of some of these things, but I think you'll get this. What did Adam do? I told him exactly not to do one thing, and that is exactly what he did. They knew that truth. And when you talk to people, I would venture to guess there's not a single person on this earth that does not have a measure of some kind of understanding of biblical truth. They may not have the whole picture. They may have never heard the gospel. But I think they know that murder is wrong. They know that adultery is wrong. They know that lying is wrong. They know that stealing is wrong. That is innate within all humankind. That's why if you go to the most treacherous of all the 
indigenous peoples on the face of the earth that are still left largely unchurched, you'll find out that they still have a moral code of ethics that's largely could be pointed toward, you know, that's what the Ten Commandments said. So there's always some place to start from. And he goes on, verse 1 in chapter 7, notice their, their lust was like an overheated oven. I love this simile. When I would have healed Israel, when I would have healed them, I wanted to heal them. My design, my plan was to heal the nation Israel. Then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered, the wickedness of Samaria. So the area between the Mediterranean coast and the valley of Jezreel, that's the area of Samaria. And the wickedness of the people in the valley of Jezreel, the people of Ephraim, the people in the region of Galilee, they were so bad that they affected all the other peoples around them, including the peoples in the mountains near Carmel. The wickedness of Samaria. For they have committed fraud. A thief comes in. A band of robbers takes spoil outside. They don't consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. God relents when we repent. God doesn't put it away until it's forgiven. Here's what's going to happen. Those who don't know the Lord, they're going to reach Judgment Day and God's going to remember every last transgression against Him. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. And then He's going to say to Him, Depart, for I have never known you. He said, Don't forget that I remember it all. Until you get right with Me, it's all stored up on your account. It is only because of the blood of Christ that your account is wiped clean and replaced with the righteousness of Jesus. Until that point, you carry it. It's yours. You own it. And now their deeds have surrounded them. They're before my face. The picture is, here's a person that's so immersed in a life of sin that they're literally encased in it. The word here could mean cocooned. They're wrapped in sin. That's all God can see. It's before His face. There's no place that He could look at that person and find any righteousness. They make a king glad in their wickedness and princes in their lies. But they are all adulterers. They're like an oven heated by a baker. And in that day and time, let me express to you how that happened. An oven was a clay oven. It was generally a pile of stones that was... On the inside, plastered with clay, there was an opening in the front of it. There was a hole in the top of it. In order to get even heat, they took and stoked it until it was blazing hot, sometimes so much so that the upper portions of it would actually glaze over as glass. So it reached temperatures in the 2,000 degree range. Okay, But you didn't put any food in it at that point in time. You were heating the oven so that it would have consistent heat. God's saying it's like an over your lust is like an overheated oven. It is raging so hot that it's going to fry absolutely everything that it comes near. He ceases stirring the fire after kneading the dough until it's leavened. And in the day of our king, princes have made him sick, inflamed with wine. When when the people of God, the people in leadership are drunks, 
It's a tough, tough, tough situation. Notice what he goes on to say. He stretched out his hand with scoffers, and they prepared their heart like an oven. And while they lie in wait, their baker sleeps all night. He stokes the fire and just nods off. It's kind of a picture of how a lot of people live their lives. In the morning, it burns like a flaming fire. They're all hot like an oven. They've devoured their judges. Their kings have fallen. And none of them calls upon me. You see, he wanted to act. He wanted to answer. But not according to their condition. He wanted to act according to his commandments. Not their condition. His command. What did I tell you to do? Is basically what he's saying. You didn't do it. You've broken our agreement. Their passion for sin was like that fire. You, you bank the fire at night and you come back in the morning you can cook on it. The next simile, and this one is, is somewhat humorous. Ephraim has mixed itself in among the peoples and Ephraim is a cake unturned or a cake half-baked is another way to look at it. In other words, if you don't turn it, the top of it's not baked. You get the picture? It just sits there. It's like dough. It's not good for anything. It's burnt on one side and uncooked on the other. Neither side is appealing, is it? You, you see, they're saying that these kings like Jeroboam I that was alive at that time that we know historically very well, they had had five kings in 13 years. And so the whole northern kingdom was like a half-baked cake. They didn't have any idea what they stood for because they stood for nothing. They just got caught up in everything. So, oh, well, you know, we'll flip on this side and then we'll flop on that side. We'll cook a little here, cook a little there, and not get cooked at all. They were half-baked. You see, these nomadic people baked their breads on basically on hot rocks. And if the dough wasn't turned... Basically, it'd be burned and undercooked simultaneously. In other words, it was good for trash, and that's it. Maybe you could make a little, you know, Play-Doh model out of it. I don't know. But I can tell you this. When it comes to your relationship with the Lord, you don't want to be half-baked. A fourth simile. You talk about vanity. Look at what it says here. As a man getting gray and not knowing it. I love this one. Because as I watch these stupid commercials on TV, now you can wipe away the gray. No, you can paint it over. The gray is still there, okay? The wrinkles on your face, you can shoot them with Botox all you want. You can go in and have a tummy tuck and a bun lift and whatever else you want to have, okay? I don't really care what you do. You're still old. <laughs> you, you look at some of these old Hollywood people. You, have you seen George Hamilton lately? Mr. Tan? He, he's fake. I'm, he, I know he's, he doesn't go into a tanning salon. He's actually been airbrushed that color. He's like 147 years old. You know, all he did is he took his wrinkles and tied them behind his head. It's the same thing. You don't think God knows how old you are? And you know how old you are. 
You can look in the mirror all day long. Oh, look, I've got a little touch of gray. No, that's your scalp. Shining in the sun. The aliens have devoured his strength and he doesn't know it. You ever seen those old dudes, and, I, and, and I'm going to be kind of nice here, but kind of not. Those old dudes, that, that they haven't quite got it that they're not 20 anymore, and they got like the ponytail, and the, you know, just kind of, you look at them, he's like, dude, you're 107 years old. You need to maybe think about growing up at some point in time. You know, and, and, and you just go, when are the, when's the light bulb going to go on? Doesn't know it. Yes, there are gray hairs here and there on him, yet he doesn't know it. Looks in the mirror. Oh, I look great. No, you look near death. <laughs> the pride of Israel testifies to his face, but they do not return to their Lord God, nor do they seek him in all of this. You see the simile? It's like, what, me? I'm not in sin. Not in sin at all. Nope, not, not me. Uh-uh, not doing it. Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. Follow the hand. There's nothing going on here. Remember that scene in one of the Star Wars movies? I'm a Criderian. You can't do that. You know, I, your mind tricks don't work on me. That's the same deal. It's like, dude, grow up. I want to remind you, Samson made the same mistake, did he not? Oh, no, I still have power. It's not actually in my hair. Oh, yeah, no, it's actually in your hair. As soon as you lose it, it's over. Chained to the pillars, eyeballs gouged out, it's over, okay? There comes a point in time when you've got to deal realistically with the, the commands of God. It's like, this is it. This is what you get. This is who you are. And you are not fooling anybody, especially God. That's why I said these similes are very helpful for understanding this principle. They don't seek Him at all. And by the way, that is the condition of the church of the very last days, the church of Laodicea. I would that you were hot or cold, but you are lukewarm. You don't even know what temperature you are. You don't know whether you're supposed to be over here just deeply and buried in sin or kind of over here not so much so. You are lukewarm. That is someone who doesn't know they got gray hair. That's somebody who doesn't know that that tummy tuck didn't do a thing. All it did was prolong the inevitable, which is at some point in time, they're either going to bury your old carcass or they're going to fry your old carcass, and it's still going to be an old carcass, okay? Nobody looks good when they're dead, all right? It's that simple. And that people, oh, you know... Do you realize that in, in the United States of America, the average cost of a funeral is $5,870? And that most of that is in the cosmetics of making a dead carcass look presentable. Pancake makeup, you know. Oh, look, there's Uncle... No, that's not Uncle Bob. He's long gone. That's, that's a shell. <laughs> that's not Uncle Bob that's there. That's a few molecules left over of his tent, and that's it. And they're not good molecules. You see, in this case, Israel thought their political strategy would win, their, their pride would win, that their national identity would win out. 
And he goes on, and, and this next one also, very funny. The Israelites are like a silly dove. We live here in, in Southern California. We have doves here. We have morning doves. We have turtle doves. We've got ringneck doves. We've got all kinds of doves here. Doves are dumb as rocks. You ever seen a dove? You come up on a dove, you got a you got a twelve gauge shot. You should be using a twenty gauge, but you got a twelve gauge and you're and you walk up to the dove, the dove's sitting there. You don't see me. I'm I'm right here, but you don't see me. There's an invisible force field over me, I'm a dove. You know, it's like you like they're not there. You're like Go ahead and fly. <laughs> like a silly dove without sense. I love that. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. You get in the picture? They're making allegiance with the enemy. The dove's sitting there. You're not going to kill me. You're not going to shoot me. You're not going to eat me. I'm going to just sit here and you'll go away. It's what the Jews did. Wherever they go, I will spread my net on them. Doves are so dumb that they'll sit there. You can just flop a net right over the top of them. And yet they can fly amazingly fast. I will bring them down like birds of the air. I will chastise them according to what, their, what the congregation has heard. You see, he's basically saying all of your little games, your pretensions, these little things that you do and you think nobody sees you, that God isn't looking, did you make your little covenant over here with this group of friends and you make your allegiance and your alliance with that group of people and you say, well, I don't really believe that God meant that when He said that. And, you know, I know His Word says those things, but nah, I'm just going to stay right here where I'm at because nothing will ever happen. God says, mm that's not how it's going to go down. The net goes over the top and you're trapped. And then finally like a faulty bow. And he goes on to say, Woe to them, for they have fled from me. Destruction to them, because they have transgressed against me. And though I redeemed them, he brought them Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He brought them the law. He brought them the temple sacrifices, the Levitical order. He brought them priests. He brought them kings. God had done everything he said he was going to do. From an Old Testament standpoint, he had brought them to the place to where when the Messiah came on the scene, they could have believed by faith in the Old Testament, waited in Abraham's bosom, and gone to be with the Lord. He had brought them to that place personally. Who was it that slaughtered the first animal as a sacrifice? It was God, was it not? Man sinned, God said, I got it covered. I will make myself a sacrifice for you. He'd done it. And yet they've spoken lies against me. They did not cry out to me with their heart. You see how he wasn't fooled? They did not cry out with their heart. They cried out with their lips. They even cried out with their mind. They even threw down some silly actions, some things they thought they could wave their hand over here and God wouldn't see what was going on over there. And then they wailed upon their beds. They assembled together for grain and new wine, and they rebel against me. 
And though I disciplined and strengthened their arms, in other words, I built them up. God invented P90X, spiritually speaking. He knew exactly how to work them out. He knew what it would take to develop the six-pack of abs, the arms of bronze. And God had done that. He said, you know what? I've taken care of everything. And yet they devise evil against me. He said, I made you who you are. You'd still be wandering around out in the foothills without me. You'd be nomads. You wouldn't have a city like Megiddo. You wouldn't have the beautiful palace up there on Mount Carmel. You wouldn't have the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. I made you think of those things. And now you're telling me you don't want me? They did evil against me. They return, but not to the Most High God. They were just simply trying to get out of trouble. Didn't like their circumstances. Was no genuine repentance. They had no intention of stopping the activity. They're going to keep beating the drum about gay marriage. They're going to keep slaughtering babies in their mother's wombs. They're going to keep passing laws that are aberrant to God's law. We don't want to change. Not going to. Matter of fact, we're going to denounce parts of God's law. We don't believe he actually meant what he said, nor said what he meant. We're going to change it so it fits the way our social mores are today. Brothers and sisters, that is exactly what befell the Jewish people. From that day to this, they have still been without the blessing of God. They've had the protection of God. They've had the temporal blessings of God. They've been restored time and time again, but they still haven't seen Messiah. They still don't have a genuine relationship with God. Israel is only about two percentage points from being the most godless place on earth. Did you know that? Two percentage points. There are more Christians in Iran than Israel. Did you know that? Yep. By almost a million. You see, their princes shall fall by the sword for their cursings of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Basically, God had called Israel. God had trained Israel. They should have been able to hit his target. They should have been able to say, you know what? This is easy. We know what he wants. We're going to do it. We trust him. They wanted to walk by sight, not by faith. And we need to walk by faith, not by sight. Amen? So we review these images. You might want to take a look at your own walk with the Lord. Maybe you know somebody you need to talk to. How lasting is their relationship? How deep is it? How dedicated is it? How strong is it? How well-baked is it? Is it half-baked? How serious? How faithful? How dependable? You see, genuine saving faith can be tested. It can be tried. And as James said, knowing that when it's tested, it'll have its perfect work. And when that gets done, you're going to be complete and lacking nothing. 
you don't want to be like these similes. Amen? I want to be like Jesus, and I pray you do too. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this evening. Thanks for your word, Lord. Thanks for the things that it speaks to us that are truth. And God, help us in our walks with you to be genuine, to be real, to be deep, to be fully baked. Lord, to not be silly. Lord, to be just all that you want us to be, God. Settle for nothing less. Lord, that still enables us to have joy, enables us to have a great time. Lord, it doesn't make us dull. It doesn't make us boring. It doesn't make us mean-spirited. It makes us like Jesus. We thank you. We praise you. We bless you. Lord Jesus, transform us. Make us new. Cause us to live like you, live for you, and live unto you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.